school shut me down. It didn't like me saying it very much. The businesses that need it most are the ones that are complacent, arrogant, ignorant. Costs you several hundred pounds to go and see your mother before she dies. So today on the Engaging Marketeer podcast, I've got the absolute pleasure of speaking with Helen Dudney, also known as the Complaining Cow. Now, she won't be offended that I call her the Complaining Cow because that's literally her brand. Uh, She helps people make complaints to companies and she helps companies uh, form their own complaints procedure to make it easier for their customers and their clients to complain to them. So Helen is is very much uh, the sort of person I would love to speak to, love to spend some time with, because I myself, as, as anybody knows listening to this podcast or has followed my blogs for years, knows that I am a massive complaining, grumpy old git. And it's it's an absolute pleasure to speak to a professional rather than an amateur like myself. I feel like a bit of a kindred spirit with you because I've done a, a lot of customer service campaigning and and complaining myself over the past I've I've even helped out BBC Watchdog when they were doing an investigation into somebody once providing evidence for them so what is it that makes you so passionate about complaining and what is it that that that's happened that makes you want to ensure that companies provide the sort of customer service that customers deserve I think well it's a long well a long story because I as a child um, I complained effectively because I, it was a matter of principle. It was always for me, it was a matter of principle, whether I was complaining against um, not getting paid for writing a letter in Jackie magazine, pound, whatever it was. It was my pound. You printed my letter, give me my pound. Um, whether it was being censored in the, in the school magazine. and But it was about the principle of the thing. So for me, it was always about that. And then... Um, so I've always sort of kept up to date with consumer law and um, fought for what was right for friends and family and myself. And I just sort of see out there that people don't know the law, they don't know how to complain or they get fobbed off. And it just makes me sort of really cross really, because even in my in my work um, and the last sort of 10 years I've been in this field. But before that, I was in children's services and that was always about fighting for children's rights. So it's always about fighting for what's right for me. That's what's that's what's important, really. And then when I started the blog, um, I just saw that there was a huge gap there that people needed help, you know, with all the companies that were just fobbing them off, frankly. And, and what, what was the catalyst that sparked this? What was it that, that happened that you thought, right, I'm not having this anymore. I'm going to stand up for this. I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, I think when I was about 11, 12, and I wrote to the Jackie magazine that didn't pay me my <laughs> pay me my pound or whatever it was for the, for the letter. Um, and then I got really annoyed that they didn't pay for the, for the stamp that, it, <laughs> that I had to, <laughs> a long, long, long before email that I had to, I had to pay. Um, so I think I pinpoint it to that, really. And the time when... Um, I was at, at school and I'd written a school magazine and then I did the second one and I was complaining about back then, back in the day, um, about girls playing boys and um, pee games and boys playing and not boys not playing girls. Obviously now it'd be all sorts of things about equal opportunities <laughs> and all those kind of, you know, the Equality Act and all that. But at the time I raised the question, um, I wonder what the Sex Discrimination Act would have to say about that. And what the Sex Discrimination Act had to say about that was that the uh, school shut me down. It didn't like me saying it very much. And uh, But what was interesting is it got it changed. Um, we, you know, it shook up the PE department. Um, so for me, that was, that was the big thing about, actually, you've got to put your head above the parapet. You've got to get yourself into trouble if you want to make change happen. You know, I got into trouble. I got things... But I got things changed. And for me, that's what was important, you know, being um, strong minded and, and, you know, strong, you know, keeping to your, to your principles, really. Yeah. And obviously, a lot of people who, who make complaints about whether they've received poor customer service or, or a faulty product, they often go at it um, a bit cack handed. You can get angry, you can get frustrated, and and you just sort of vent at what what you feel to be an injustice. What's your your advice to somebody on making sure they they get the resolution that they they deserve? Well, I always say the top tip is always to write, always always write, because um, then you've got your evidence trail. So if you need to take it to an ombudsman or go to the small claims court, or you're being sent round 
around the houses, you've got that evidence. If you phone, you just don't have that. Um, and if you are going to phone because it's urgent, make sure you take the names of people, the times, log it all, follow up with an email. This is what was agreed. Um, but also in writing, you, you don't lose your rag. <laughs> so, and if you do, you can and then go delete and write it again. Um, and you don't forget stuff. You can make sure that um, everything you want to put in goes in. You can attach stuff. And um, so it's always, always writing wherever possible. And if um, the the company don't want you emailing and so they don't provide any email address like certain big companies are doing now, then just go to ceoemail.com and that will provide you with the CEO's email address. Now, it's very rare for the CEO to respond personally, although some do, you know, Optus Energy does, Richard Sands does. Um but it does escalate it and it does get it into the system and it does mean you have your writing and you have got it and the better of them because you've managed to get it in writing and you've got that evidence. So that's really, really the, the top tip is to always do it in writing mm. and, you know, to keep it calm and no, objective. I, no, I, I completely get where you're coming from there. I, most of the, the complaining I've done over the years has been via phone. Uh, but I always make a point of taking the name of the person I'm speaking to and the time and the date that I've called them. So that when I invariably have to call them again a week later because they haven't done what they said they were going to do, I can reference, I called this person on this date, on this time. Yeah. And if they need to pull the call, they can. Because if otherwise you're just saying, I phoned up last week and I spoke to um, somebody and I don't know don't know mm. who it was. And it just leaves you in the same situation you were right from the start. So with, with companies making these sorts of customer service blunders, what do you think is, is the key mistake companies keep making? I think well, the key is we're quite a lot. <laughs> They're making quite a lot of mistakes. Okay, now, now we're down to the top 50. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think when I ask consumers, you know, what's what frustrates you the most, it's not being listened to, not being taken seriously, um, being sent around the houses. It's those kinds of things that when they, when they notify a company of something, that they just don't listen to them, they don't... Um, take take them as an individual it's like here's the stock answer um, and that they just do not um treat that person you are as an individual you are an individual this is your issue and this is what we're going to do about it and do it and those are without doubt the top things that come up for people that are the most frustrating it's just that you know we can we can take you saying you're not going to get back to us for a week, but tell us you're not going to get back to us for a week because you're going to investigate. You know, it's that kind of thing. And it's not the, um, oh, we're sorry you feel like that. That's not a proper apology. You know, we want you to apologise properly, you know, and actually mean it. Um, because I think companies don't realise that, I don't know whether it's arrogance, complacency, ignorance, combination of all three, um, that they don't realise that, you know, that if they treated the customers well, then those customers will go on and talk about them and, and say good things about them. They will review them, you know, well, even if, even if you've got a complaint. You know, I, I wrote about it on LinkedIn literally just yesterday. I had a complaint about Addison Lee and um, who disturbed me um, at sort of midnight and had been texting me to say my car that I hadn't ordered was um, was there and they phoned and all this night and I emailed the CEO and it was pushed to the customer service team. And within 24 hours, they had um, got back to me. They asked me for one, one piece of detail. Within an hour, they had investigated the matter. They had apologised. They said they were going to talk to the members of staff involved. They'd find out what had gone wrong. And they said, you know, you can have a free trip um, anywhere within the M25. Now, that's how you deal with the complaint, because I then wrote about that on LinkedIn this is how you deal with a complaint. Mistakes happen, but this is how you deal with it. So it's about seeing complaints as an opportunity to improve because it means now they can they can look at their systems. Um, so there's so much opportunity to have uh, in dealing with complaints, but companies just don't get it. I think half the time. No, that's that's, that's really interesting that you you said that because yeah, I saw your your post on LinkedIn about that. And when, when a company gets a complaint, it is an opportunity to improve. It's an opportunity to mm. turn somebody who is a, a potential detractor into a raving fan. And it's one of the things that you talk about a lot, isn't it? It's making yeah. your, your customers into raving fans. And it's something yeah. we, we talk about when we do marketing training about how to turn your customers into raving fans, the, the way Apple does. 
the way Apple does. So all an Apple customer, they, they don't need to do marketing. Their customers go out and tell all their other customers how amazing their products are, and they just want to do it. So what, what is it? how do you help businesses uh, to improve their customer service so that they turn their customers and their clients into fans? I think, well, I do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot in lots of different ways. Um, but I think the fundamental sort of basis to get, cus- to, get to companies looking at their customers in a different way. Um, and it's about looking at customers as individuals, not saying, oh, I've got 20 customers over here. Now you have 20 people with names and uh, lives um, and that uh, some people are vulnerable. And at some point in their life, nearly everybody will have a vulnerability, and whether it's a disability, whether it's a, um, a, a bereavement whether, you know, any of those things, age, you know, whether lots and lots and lots of different vulnerabilities um, and actually accommodating that and looking at how when they get I don't know, an, an aggressive email from somebody, actually, is it aggressive or is it because they're 80 years old and they don't know how to use email very much, you know, well, um, and actually they're using all capital letters because they don't know. Or is their email really difficult to understand because actually they've got a learning disability? Instead of just going, oh, I can't really deal with this one, or I'm going to give them the minimum required here, actually looking at customers in a different way, I think that's quite fundamental. And when I've worked with, you know, big companies and worked with Lloyds, it's, it's, um, it really is a change in mindset. And people quite often want permission to be able to change. So I talk to sort of directors of big companies and they say, right, OK, we're now going to cascade this training to our um, our teams, okay, oh, but can we can we take out the standard paragraph that we're, we're so used to using? Can we do this? So they need the permission. You need to give permission to to staff, to give them that ownership to actually deal with the complaint, um, because then you know we get we get um, responses back from people who say, "Thank you for treating me as indiv- individual. You didn't give me what I wanted, but actually I can see you investigated my." my complaint properly and adequately and you know that you you treated me seriously as an individual you can't get better than that you know you cannot get better than somebody coming back and saying you dealt with my complaint really well when they didn't even get what they wanted and that's about changing mindset and about how you see customers and how you deal with them I think for me that's the fundamental way you you know where you absolutely start and then everything will come from that and, and how open do you see, because you say you work with sort of corporate board level with banks, how open do you find businesses typically are to making these changes to improve their, their customers' customers experience? Well, it's an interesting one because um, if they come to me, they're already open. They realise that, they're, that they're, um, they just want to improve. So they might, be on a, they might already be on a journey and they go, do you know what, what? we want to get better, we want to be continually improving. So that's when they'll come to me. Um, the businesses that need it most are the ones that are complacent, arrogant, ignorant, and don't go to people like me. They just think, oh, we'll just do it all in-house and we'll just, oh, yeah, look at all our customer service. Well, your customer service stinks. Um, but I think if you've got an attitude of we always want to be improving, we always want to change, we always want to get better, we want to treat our customers well, then the knock-on from that is just naturally that you'll get more sales. That's, I think, is what what sort of attracts people, attracts companies to me. That's how open they are. They're already open because they've come to me. The ones that are that are closed because because of those other things that I've said, you know, arrogance, complacency, and ignorance. They just don't want to change, which is very um, it's very sort of small-minded in a way because they don't realise the opportunities. They don't realise, you know, that we know that it costs at least five times as much to get a new customer, probably far worse now, particularly in the times that we live in, than to retain one. It's much more important to retain a customer now. So why aren't you investing in retaining customers and getting them to do your marketing for you than to get new customers? So, again, it's sort of mindset, really, as as to where people's heads are at, as to why they don't get that. Mm. (laughs) For me, it's obvious. It is, and there's companies that spring to mind um, that that have no interest in in customer service during the customer experience. They're they're, they're great at the beginning, and then when the customer's about to leave, then they leap into action, but for the whole duration, they don't tend to be that bothered. Usually it's sort of 
digital TV providers or telecoms yeah. that are the worst yeah. for that? Absolutely, telecoms are the worst. Absolutely. You know, you, to get anything from them, you just have to threaten to leave. Um, they are appalling. And I, you know, with Virgin, I've just had, you know, nightmares over the 20 years that I've been with them. Um, and that even I struggle with them. I mean, I get there and I get a very decent payout at the end of it, but that's because I know exactly what I'm doing, exactly what I'm saying. Um, but if I struggle and they drive me to distraction, your average consumer will just give up. And I think, again, that's very much complacency with the telecoms because people say to me, well, who can I go to? Well, they're all rubbish. So when when this person leaves company A and they go to company B, somebody's leaving from company B to go to company C. And so they're just people just moving around. So they don't they don't care. They think, oh, for everyone we've lost, we're going to gain one without thinking, actually, let's invest. Let's take a hit for a couple of years, because actually the evidence shows that people will pay more for good customer service. The evidence shows that. Um, so once you've invested and you're a few years ahead of other people in how good your customer service is, you're onto a winner. But but they just don't get it. <laughs> which which you think with well, particularly Virgin, you mentioned with the Virgin brand and the way Branson runs his businesses, mm-hmm. you think they would be of all companies would be on top of that. Yeah. Is there, not. <laughs> is there a particular industry other than, than telecom, a particular industry that you think has this problem that, that needs your help more than any other, but isn't taking action on it? I think it's, I mean, telecoms are just huge. It just, it's just, I don't think one person can, can do, <laughs> frankly, I think I'd need a huge team. Um, you know, energy isn't great, you know, even particularly now. Um, that's it, it, It's pretty pretty poor we're seeing examples of of um energy companies just not treating their customers well at all not just on you know the energy prices but how they're um misleading them i think in in the possibly misleading them i did a um an article a couple of weeks ago with your money about british gas that appear to have told people a few months ago that they were on a fixed tariff having been moved from you know another one because they were the um uh, a company of last resort. So, you know, when a, a company's gone bust, they've gone to British Gas and they said, oh, you're on this fixed term and they've made it look like that. And then 30 days before the price hike, they said, actually, you're on a variable. Um, so that's been sort of reported off, Jen. We need to see what happens with that. Um, but it's it's that kind of feel the whole time that people are being misled. And that's about sort of marketing as well, because you know, it's just, it just doesn't feel right. And, you know, and it, does it take an investigation? Why are they, you know, doing that? Um, there's lots of, you know, the things about, are they char- overcharging for the direct debits? It's, it's just, it just needs a, you know, a nasty taste in your mouth really is that how are companies treating people? So I'd say right up there and, and it always is in all the surveys, it's always telecom and energy that's, um, Whatever way you want to look at it, bottom of the <laughs> bottom of the table or the top of the table, whichever way you look at it, yeah, um, it's always them. But for me, it's the telecoms are the worst. Yeah, and, and I think it's only fair in contrast. I ask, you know, what, what industries do you think are doing it particularly well, or have have changed to do it particularly well? Um, I think to say sector, I don't think it, there is any one one sector that does it well. Um, and for whenever I ask consumers, particularly on social media, and I'll say, oh, what chain, what store, what trader do you think is doing really well? And for everyone that will say, oh, my John Lewis is really great here, for example, somebody else will come, well, mine's really bad. That I try to take this back and la-di-da-di-da. Um, so it's, it's very difficult, you know, because John Lewis, for example, were always known for great customer service. It was always, you know, everyone thought they were brilliant and everything. I've literally just dealt with a complaint for um, a client who had been five years trying to get her cooker sorted. It's been bust and it kept um, conking out and all this over five, over five years. And they were fopping her off. They'd had six visits. And so I went in with Consumer Rights Act and warranties are relevant. And I got her a new cooker and 150 quid. But for five years, no difference in the story, no difference in what happened, just the way I wrote the email with what I put in. And that, for me, shows really poor service because it shouldn't matter how somebody has written 
or what they've written. They shouldn't have to threaten the law. They shouldn't have to threaten small claims court. It should simply be, this is what's happened and this is what we do. Um, so it's sad to see some companies that are dealing with people like that. So I don't think we can say so one particular sector is good. I think um, small businesses uh, tend to care about their customers a little bit more because they're building and so they want to retain that retain that sort of field of, of, of customers so they haven't got that complacency and arrogance around them but of course then smaller businesses when they set up quite often don't have the fundamentals in place and then when they get a complaint they don't know how to deal with it because they think well I'm never going to get complaints I'm never going to get complaints because I'm a really lovely one person band um, and then that's when I come into them because they've <laughs> they've not put the things in place to begin with so I don't think there's one particular industrial sector that does it well but there are individuals within the sector that that do, do it well and then when you look in the chains you go well that store doing really well over there i know in reading but that one in glasgow is doing really badly so it's um quite often just comes down to the management i think mm. as well yeah, that, 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 that's quite interesting because obviously a store like john lewis for example or, or a chain store like asda or tesco's they will have processes in place for dealing with complaints and dealing with returns and you're right, it's down to how the actual store follows those processes because they're probably not following them all to the letter. But when mm-hmm. you mention small businesses, a lot of our, or well, the majority of the clients that we were with, for example, are small businesses. You're right, they don't have those processes in place because they're just not ready for that. So mm. what can a small business do so that they are prepared for that? What sort of processes can they put in place so that they can retain customers and give customer service and deal with the complaints that they may eventually get they need to make sure that they're legal, <laughs> legally compliant, that they've got their terms and conditions sort of correct. You know, I've worked with people who, who've said no returns. You can't say that. That's <laughs> that's illegal. Um, you've, you've got to know your laws. You've got to really know about the Consumer Rights Act 2015. You've got to know um, that people are allowed to send items back to you, you know, that they can notify you within 14 days and then the next 14 days to, to send it to you. Um, those are different regulations so you need to sort of know about that and get that in place so that when people are going to return something to you and people will whether they change their mind you have to if it's off site you have to change it um, or give, give a refund it's up to you whether you pay for the return postage um but if it's faulty or not as described or didn't last a reasonable length of time then you have to pay for that it's all those kinds of things that small businesses don't don't get because they're they're enjoying the marketing and they're setting up the selling. Um, it's about knowing that. And then also, I think you do really well to actually not sort of promote, but actually put it out that this is our returns policy. This is how good we are. We really hope you'll be delighted with your purchase. But if you aren't and something goes wrong, this is what happens. Because if you as a consumer, you look on a website and you see two businesses offering the same product or very much the same product, same price. This one says, if something goes wrong, we will do X, Y, and Z to put it right. And this one says nothing about putting something wrong. Which one are you going to have more faith in? You know, so nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, there's not going to be a problem. But if there is a problem, I know you're going to put it right. So, it, you know, it is about showing people how to complain. And if you want um, not if you want them to complain, but if they need to complain, how to do that, how best to do that. For you. you know, where, where's the email address? Where's the phone number? You know, tell them what you need. Do you need an account number? Do you need the order number? Make it easy because people don't know how to complain. So make it easy for them to contact you. And if they give you all the information you need, you'll be able to deal with it much quicker. Because I got told, I know when I met um, Dave Lewis years ago, um, who was the group CEO of Tesco and he said to me when I took what out my book he said I wish our customers had this book because it would make our life easier in dealing with complaints because so often we don't know what people want when they code it they haven't ranted us but they don't tell us tell us what they want so that's what small businesses can can do to make it easier for people tell us what you want is it a refund is it a partial refund is it a replacement you know make it easy for your customers to contact you, tell you what it is they want, and, and to complain to you, because it will put you above your competition. 
No, again, that, that's really interesting points. I mean, I agree with that completely because having a returns policy, having a money-back guarantee, having a process for complaining that is visible when people make a purchase or, or sign up as a client sets you apart from your competitor. It is a, a differentiating factor, and we've used that ourselves. We, we do um, a training package that we have for, for Facebook advertising. We have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So anybody can just get their money back after 30 days, whether they've done the training or not. And it is a selling point. Most people don't do that yeah, because they're, they're happy with what they get. But it is a selling point. And as you say, making it easier for people to complain so they know the process makes it quicker and easier for you. Because if there's a, an actual maybe a form they fill in that has all the details that you require, that's going to come through to you in the format that you want it, as opposed to somebody sending you a message via Facebook or sending you a message mm-hmm. via LinkedIn or sending you an email or a written letter or, or phoning up and getting through to the wrong department, which is going to waste so much of your time. It's better for the customer, it's better for you, and it's better for your sales to, to do it that way. Um, in terms of actually making complaints, because I, I, I've had some horrific ones over the years. Maybe I'll go into one later. But what is the, the biggest success that you have had, the biggest turnaround where you thought, this, this is a horrific situation, but you've managed to resolve it? Do you know, I often get asked that. What was my biggest result? What was the biggest sum for me? It's not about that. It just really isn't about that, you know. So I've made... I've, I've complained about free gift and I've complained about things for thousands of pounds. For me, it's not about that. It just really isn't about the amount. It's about the principle. And for example, that the, the, the story that I spoke about is that somebody's been fighting for five years um, and getting that win for her. You know, for me, that was really good. Um, for me, I, you know, so I don't remember that. So obviously I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, but I still remember one that's written about in the book. So it must be over six years now must be over six years ago and um must be over eight years ago um but easyjet and um family had gone on holiday and the husband's mother was dying and they'd got their notification to say that you know you need to come back early to see her before she dies and easyjet wouldn't let them do it they were charging them but had she have died while they were out there, they would have paid for her, for paid for the family to come back, which I thought was pretty horrific, really. They were actually saying, no, it's going to cost you several hundred pounds to go and see your mother before she dies, which I just thought was, I just thought it was morally, morally wrong. And I got involved in that. And um, and I got their, their their flight, and obviously I had to work very quickly on that. Um, so yeah, so I got that one. So, so for me, now as I say, that was years and years ago, but that one stayed with me because I just thought it was so just morally just awful. Um, and so I got I got that in you know, the money minus the admin fee or something. Um, and so that got sorted. It's that kind of thing that that sticks with me, not not amounts. Mm. To be honest, it wasn't the amount I was referring. To. It was the the story. What is the most memorable, rather than what is what is the most expensive? Because um, one I've had, for example, was Carphone Warehouse. I don't know if you've had much experience with them over the years. Uh, I think I, I bought two mobiles years ago. We're talking like two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, from Carphone Warehouse, and realised that we needed to take one back because we could actually have got an upgrade on an existing phone rather than buy the handset outright. And they told us in the store that the 14-day money-back guarantee that was advertised throughout the store did not apply to phones. This is Carphone Warehouse telling you that the money-back <laughs> guarantee does not apply to phones. And it was my wife at the time took it back to the store in, in Bristol. I had to then phone up their customer service department where the manager said, oh, that's absolutely shocking. No, that's not true. It does apply to phones, of course. Well, naturally, it's car phone warehouse. What mm-hmm. else would it apply to if it wasn't phones? So she then had to go all the way back into Bristol to actually refund it. But I wrote this as a blog because I, I, I'm in digital marketing. Most of what I do ends up online, which is how I get a lot of people coming to me. And a lot of other people were complaining about this blog. Uh, sorry, complaining on the blog about car phone warehouse, sharing their stories about all the horrific incidents they'd had with car phone warehouse. But then somebody put a comment on it saying that how Carphone Warehouse was really great customer service and they'd had a fantastic experience with them. But when I looked into the actual back end of the blog, the email address that person had used was a Carphone Warehouse email address. <laughs> so they would put a fake name on the blog, but they'd use their real name on the email and it was a Carphone Warehouse PR manager. 
So I then wrote that as a blog. The Carphone Warehouse was now going on and faking reviews using their, mm. their customer service team. And this just turned into an, an ongoing slanging match with Carphone Warehouse, insisting that, oh, I was a customer at the time when I did that. So it, it's really about not just a company making a mistake, which they did rectify, but we had to go all the way back in to do it. But it's about the way they tried to cover it up online and mm. lied about it. Have you experienced anything like that where companies try to cover up the mistakes that they've made? And say that I haven't had happen. it on my on my blog. Um, they wouldn't dare, I think. I think I on your blog. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't think people would be so stupid as to do that. I, I was shocked. I was shocked at how stupid <laughs> yeah. she was. Yeah. Um, User personal yeah, email what, address. Come on. Yeah, given given what was, I don't try to think if I mean, anybody sort of has had that. You know, I've certainly had sort of people who don't understand the law and don't understand. Um, you know, my investigations or, you know, how that's, that's worked and that's sort of come out in different ways. Um, I don't think I've had sort of, had sort of businesses sort of blatantly doing that. But I mean, businesses do fob people off and that's what's, that's what's, you know, worst thing really. Um, because it's still about transparency. It's still about being honest. You know, if you're transparent and say you've made a mistake and this is how we deal with it, um, you know, in that situation where you had to go back and all the rest of it, you should have been given redress for your travel. Um, and to which you were legally entitled. Um, so, you know, it's it's about people not knowing that actually, actually, you know that and you should have given that redress. It's about doing the right thing, even if the customer doesn't doesn't know that they could get X, Y, and Z, doing the right thing. Actually, you're going to feel better about your business and they will talk about it because instead of you saying, well, this has happened, this is a bad story, they do you know, actually, I didn't know, but they also gave me the money for the travel. How much better would that be for them? How much, you know, how much better story would that be in the marketing for them just for doing the right thing? So it's, you know, you don't even have to go hugely over and above, just do the right thing. So by the same token, when you're going around doing stupid things like, you know, writing, you know, fake emails or fake reviews and stuff, it just, it will back, it will backfire. So, and it's unlikely not to, um, because if you've got a big enough audience, people will pick it up. But I think when you go sort of going back in the stories that that, um, that I remember, so it was like that that one was getting the one that was sort of um, right on, on the EasyJet. Another one, like I I have on my blog quite a lot of stories about Tesco because it's where I shop most of my supermarket and I took them to court eight, ten years ago. And from then I've always done sort of lots of um, lots of blogs, good, bad, whatever, met the team, interviewed Dave and Matt and all of that. But there was one time within all that that I had a complaint about, and I can't remember, this is what's interesting, I can't remember what the complaint was. It was something to do with the collection. Something had gone wrong with the collection um, for some event or something, and I'd gone to the collection point and it wasn't there or something. So I wrote to complain, and the manager came round with flowers and chocolate. And, in fact, she said that she'd gone to a house down the road and... A woman had answered the door and gone, oh, lovely flowers. And then she felt really bad about that because they weren't for her, they were for me. And she sent her flowers to apologise to her, which I thought was really good. Because people make mistakes like that, you know, you go to the wrong door. But she sent her flowers. But the fact that I got, you know, flowers and chocolates to apologise for what had gone wrong. And I can't even remember what had gone wrong. But I wrote about it in the blog because that's about exceeding expectations. You can exceed expectations in the complaint. I just expected a refund. And for what I do, I expect I, I get refunds all the time. I very rarely get, you know, the nice gestures because of what I'm like, I'm legally entitled to X, Y, and Z, and then I get it. Um, so it just goes to show when you put that little bit of effort in, that's what's memorable. You know, people remember how you made them feel. And that's absolutely true. Because as I say, I've been, I'm in my 50s, I've been doing this stuff for years and years and years. Very few stories do I remember. Very, very few. But I remember that one because they made me feel great because I'd got chocolates and wine and flowers. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember once actually. Um, I had a, I think it was a, a credit card or a loan with Barclays, and they'd taken two payments in one month. And that was quite a surprise because it was quite a, a large payment they'd taken. And I complained about this, eventually got on the phone with one of the, the representatives. And I remember I was in the shop at the time. 
So I always remember I was walking down the aisle of the shop and, and the guy was saying, well, what, what would make this right for you, Mr. Jameson? What would make this right for you? And I said, well, presumably some, some form of compensation would make this right. And, and they actually gave me £400 compensation, mm-hmm. plus obviously repaid the, the money back in. And I thought, well, that, that's really good. I'm really happy with that. I've, I've, I've not had that kind of resolution before from something like this. And it's always made me remember now that, yeah, Barclays, they, they, they sort stuff out. They don't try and yeah, fob and you off. And that's the thing that I think so many businesses don't get, that actually they just think short-term, let's let's just not give them that. Let's fob people off with, oh, no, you've got a contact with Courier, or when actually your contract's with them, or you should have taken out a warranty, or, you know, and, oh, you know oh, we, we don't give refunds. They don't realise that actually short-term win, it's a long-term lose, you know, it really, really is. If you actually take that short-term hit and go, actually, here's a payout, here's what we're going to do, the longer term of that is so good because you're going to retain that customer and they're going to speak to other people. You fob them off and they find out from people like me that they've been fobbed off. They're going to tell lots of people and you're going to lose their custom. And you just multiply that by your attitude with all your customers. You're not going to have a business. No. What One thing I've, I see recurring as terms of um, complaints about businesses, and I've had these myself, it, it affects companies like Marks & Spencer's, Waitrose, John Lewis, uh, Amazon sometimes, Halfords, whatever, uh, is about the couriers they use. Mm-hmm. The couriers they use. Um, in particular, companies like, like Yodel. And there must be something like 15, 20 parody Yodel Twitter accounts. <laughs> I own one of them. I own <laughs> one of them because I had an experience probably like 2007, 2008, and it was so horrific. I thought, right, I'm setting this up. I set up this website. I set up this this Twitter account. And it's just exploded since then. It's just exploded. Mm. And it seems to be that companies that are employing delivery firms like that are creating a rod for their own back because they're going for the cheapest form of delivery mm. where the delivery firm itself employs the drivers on targets they cannot possibly hit paying them very, very little money for each delivery, and they don't get paid if they don't deliver it, mm-hmm. which is then creating the problems that parcels are getting thrown over fences. There was one where it was actually chucked on a roof. That made it onto a Vigot News for You with a picture of the parcel on yeah. somebody's roof, and they had the card through the door that said parcel on roof, which was hilarious. What experiences have you got with delivery firms or with companies that are using delivery firms that are having a negative impact on their own uh, business? I think it's an interesting one. I do a um, one of my talks I do, and I obviously do speaking events and stuff. And one of the one of the presentation slides has got one of my favourites, which is the um, uh, signed by. So the card, you know, that's left signed by Plant Pot. Just really, <laughs> I think it was a text signed by Plant Pot. <laughs> I just think that you know that's really clever, isn't it? Um, the thing is, I think a lot of the time with uh, couriers, it's quite often comes down to drivers because most drivers would not throw your parcel on the on the roof. Um, and I think I said, you know, we get sort of parcels, we get parcels to the neighbours quite often because I work at home and they're out. So, but I get to see obviously quite a lot of drivers. And there's one woman, absolutely fine, brilliant. And I can't remember which which company she's with, which is a certain um, shops. And then there are others that clearly they can't keep their staff. It's a different courier every single time. She's been coming for a few years, but the other other companies, they're like, oh, you just get used to one and they're they're changing. So they clearly don't pay their staff well. They don't look after them. Um, And I think it is, again, it's short-sighted these companies using these these courier companies because they just need to, to pay them more. These companies need to sort of charge more. But again, it's quite often that people don't realise that their contract is with the company that they bought the item from. So they spend their time chasing the courier. So quite often the company don't even know that actually the courier have messed up because so many, the majority of consumers are contacting the courier company. But they still say, I won't shop at X because they use Y. Now I hear that a lot, but that company don't know that. They don't know that because the customers aren't telling them. So those companies are not finding out. They're not getting feedback from their customers. They're not saying, how is your delivery? They're not discovering that. So they don't know they're losing these customers. 
that's the thing. It's like anywhere that they're losing customers from poor service, they don't know. They know who they're gaining, but they don't know who they're losing. And courier couriers are definitely part of that because I hear all the time people will not use certain companies because they use certain couriers. Yeah. On on the uh, one of the Yodel Twitter accounts that I run, that's semi-automated as well. So it, it's partly run by a robot, so it, it picks out people complaining. Um, a lot of the complaints centre around Virgin because Virgin use Yodel to deliver the digital media boxes. And I have probably done hundreds of replies to people's tweets where somebody will not have had their Virgin media box arrive when it was supposed to arrive. They will tweet at Virgin and say, my Virgin media box has not arrived. Where is it? Virgin will then reply to them and say, you need to contact Yodel. They're the courier delivering it. Which is wrong, you which, see? Which I always legally re- incorrect. Exa- which I always reply to them and say, no, Virgin Media, yeah. your contract is with the courier, you deal with it. But they, yeah. every time, they will try and fob the customer off yeah. and put, get them to put in touch with Yodel. And I know if, if that customer gets in touch with Yodel, Yodel will spend probably a day or so saying, firstly, they'll have an automated reply that will say, DM me the, the delivery yeah. code. <laughs> You'll do that. That's just to buy time, hoping it'll turn up. Then when you do that, they'll come back to you and eventually say, oh, you need to contact the sender. It's just a round-robbing problem where Virgin will try and buy time, Yodel will try and buy time, hoping that the item turns up, but they're just wasting the customer's time, wasting each other's time, and getting the customer more and more annoyed before they've even had their box arrive, before they've even started, Yeah, which frustrates the hell out of me, and I don't understand why Virgin Media does this. It's, it's what I keep saying: arrogance, complacency, and ignorance. Because they don't, because they're so big, they don't they don't care about their customers. And I think it's a difficult one because people don't change their telecom provider. It's quite difficult. And you know, I keep saying I should, and even I don't. And the reason I don't is because I've had the same email address for twenty years. So the thought of thinking oh, all the different places that's on. You know, if I do change, how will I change? And it's that. And at some point, I need to make sure that all my emails are using my complaining cow account. Um, and then when I stop getting emails using Virgin, that's when I'll start to look. And I still haven't done it. So although, you know, I suggest to people, yeah, you need to shop around, you need to look. Actually, that makes it very difficult. And I think companies know that. If they know that people like me won't even change because it's it's too hard or it's too time-consuming to change all my email addresses with everybody, um, then then they're just complacent. They just think it doesn't matter. That we've, we're, we've going to keep them. Yeah. And uh, as, as I was getting annoyed then, I was remembering, because it, it, it's just building up inside me, that I've, I've got to share it. The worst customer experience I've ever had was from Direct Line Insurance. Because I had my car insured with Direct Line years ago, and it was stolen. It was. It broke down. It ended up in a garage. It needed a new radiator. Somebody broke into the garage and used it as a getaway car, which was quite exciting for the car, I'm <laughs> sure. But because it, it had no radiator, it only got as far as Bristol before the radiator and the engine blew. Direct line insurance, because the police recovered it. Direct line had already paid out, but they paid out my ex-wife on the car and it wasn't her car. So they paid out somebody else on the car. The police recovered <laughs> it, brought it back to me. Brilliant, I've got my car back. I can get it fixed. Direct line said, no, no, no. We've paid out on that car. We own it. I said, well, you've not paid me, and I'm the owner of the car. Mm-hmm. This took 18 months. 18 months with direct line insisting they owned the car. They'd already paid out on it. I had to hide it in my dad's garage because I couldn't use it. Before eventually, after numerous blogs on the internet, because that's how they found out it had been recovered, because they wouldn't talk to me because she'd Mm -hmm. taken me off the policy, so they wouldn't speak to me, so I couldn't even tell them the car had been recovered. I was blogging the whole thing on the internet. They phoned me up and said, do you know this blog, mrdaz.com? Yeah. Your car, we believe it's been recovered. Yes, it has. Why didn't you tell us? I tried. You put the phone down on me. You wouldn't speak to me. So the whole thing took 18 months. Eventually, they admitted they'd made a mistake and should have tried to find out who owned the car before they paid out on it. Yes, you probably should have. But they only paid me a £100 compensation for 18 months of the car being stuck in the garage. And at the time, I was so exhausted with that 18-month battle to get my car sorted that I just accepted that. And every time I look back on that, I think there's no way I should have accepted that. Now, did you go to the financial ombudsman? Uh, Did I go to the financial ombudsman? I don't think I did for that one. 
I don't think could have done it. Could have done it after your eight weeks. <sighs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Sunshine. You could have sorted that much quicker. But again, people don't know. Yeah. You see, people don't know. That could have gone to the financial ombudsman. You could have asked for a deadlock letter and done it before eight weeks or waited for the eight, eight weeks, gone to the financial ombudsman. And even with their backlog, it's quite a simple one. They would have done, they would have dealt with that within probably two or three months. Not 18 months. <laughs> How long ago was it? Uh, it was 2006. Oh, too, too long. I was going to say, if you a good couple of years, I'd say go, go for it. Yeah. But, but 2006, financial ombudsman probably would have sorted that very, very quickly. <laughs> they didn't have a bot- backlog then. <laughs> it, it, what thing that got me, it was the smugness. So when I phoned them up to tell them the car had been recovered, because the police had recovered it, which I was shocked about, they'd found it. I phoned them up, I gave the policy number, and they immediately said, I'm sorry, we've been told we can't speak to you. I have to terminate this call. And I'm about to say, oh, but the car's been... Re- beep. What can I do? And then they were angry I hadn't told them. It's like, you would not speak to me. There was no way I could contact you. Again, that's when it comes down to writing. You've got your evidence. Whether they respond to you or not is another matter. If they don't respond to you, that is evidence in itself. So that when you go to the financial office, when you say, I wrote this letter, and I wrote this letter, and I wrote this, and I didn't get a response to any of them, that goes against them. You know, sitting that, putting that in front of an ombudsman, when you have phone calls, it just... <laughs> Not yeah, there. yeah, and unless 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 you record the phone calls, which I do have, a that's ha- a different a different case. I still wouldn't advise doing that, yeah. um, because they can because they can ask permission for you to whether they can use it for training and stuff. Whether you can use that in court or whether you can use that announcement, it's up to them whether they decide it's admissible or not. So you can certainly you can record it for your own private use. Yeah. So if you want to remember things, you can say you said this, this, and this. But actually, as evidence you may not be able to use it in court. You may not be able to use it at an ombudsman. So it's still writing. Yeah, I've, I've looked into that quite quite extensively. I think it's the Ripper Act of 2000 on call recording. So if you record your own calls, you are legally allowed to do so without mm-hmm. telling the other party that you're doing it, but you're not allowed to use it. You can't use it in yeah. court. You can't even play it for somebody else. You can't play it no. for you know your, your, your husband, your wife, your, your mother. Nobody else is allowed to hear that recording. There is... When I tried to, when I tried to get some real clarity on this, Minister um, of Justice and Ofcom and all that, it was still quite woolly. Yeah. Um, it was still, you may or may not be able to use it in court. And at the end of the day, you want your evidence that you may need to use in court or the ombudsman. But so you just just got to do it in writing. Something like that. There's no need to phone. There's no urgency. No. There is there is a slight grey area with the phone calls on the if it's in the public interest. That's that's and that's right. But whether it's yeah. when it's a case for you and you've just got one individual case like yeah. that, they could probably say. And so that's what that's what I'm saying about it's down to the magistrate, the judge, mm. whatever, who might just go. It's not admissible, and you take that risk. You don't take any risk with writing. Mm. No, no, I agree with that. Yeah, because I, 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 I've never recorded calls with the idea that they're going to be admissible. I, I know no. I can't use them for for proof. Um, I tend to use them for journalistic reasons, is what I call it. Um, so I've had calls with people who've made ridiculous admissions and blunders, and I have used them as audio recordings on websites. And I've had arguments with solicitors about this, and I enjoy doing that because I think it's fun. Um, but it's never come back on me. I've always got away with it so far. Uh, so far, it, it may not continue. Um, but yeah, so call recordings, you can't use them legally, uh, from, from my understanding. And, and America's got similar rules that are different in different states as well. Um, I always like the. I don't think we well, don't start on America. No, no, I'm not. I'm not going. No, no. <laughs> like people ask me, go. It's difficult enough keeping up with the UK. And, yeah, anybody from America, do not take that as, as as advice. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, in the UK, you can record your calls, but you probably cannot use them for any purpose. Uh, mm. It's just for your own record. Yeah, but as you say, a letter you can evidence that you sent it. An email you can evidence that you sent it. Okay, so um, in, in in summary, then Helen, if if somebody wants your advice uh, to work with you, whether that's uh, to make a complaint on their behalf or to advise them about that, or as a company that wants you to come in and speak to them about how they can better their own customer service, what are the best ways they can get in touch with you and what sort of things can you do for them? Well, uh, the best place is my website, so thecomplainingcow.co.uk, and that's split into business and consumers. So consumers can find lots of free advice there, lots and lots of free um, information about how to complain effectively and your consumer rights and stories. The books are there. Um, there's some templates to, to buy and download if you want an instant um, 
instant action. I mean, there's templates in the books, but if you want to like do something now, there's templates there. Um, and there's a link to my merchandise, my sell products with the complaining cow on it. So that's where consumers can get a hold of me and also on Twitter at complaining cow, I'm on Facebook, the complaining cow, Instagram, the complaining cow. I tend not to do much um, consumer stuff on there, although I do some. Um, I just tend to do a rant a day. I do my rant just to stop my head exploding. So that's a bit of fun on Instagram. Um, and obviously I'm on LinkedIn. So for businesses, they go through the businesses, um, they'll see lots of testimonials, they'll see um, that I do power hours and uh, workshops there's uh, a training for corporate and there's um uh what's the word i'm looking for um individual um uh, workshops and consultancy mystery shopping um and all those kinds of things so that companies can just get in contact with me email me and ask me more about what i do what their issues are i tend to do quite a lot on um uh vulnerable customers and treating people as individuals how to prevent complaints um, how to deal with them, how to exceed expectations. So that can be anything from a small, you know, power hour um, to get small businesses, you know, thinking in a different way or dealing with issues just for an hour for £99. And um, right up to the expensive you know, corporate <laughs> packages. Um, so that's all there on the website. I just don't think there's anything else. But yes, and so um, all the testimonials are there from companies that I've worked with and um, all my media stuff. It's on both sides. Okay, and, and that's for not just business to consumer, that's for business to business as well, isn't it? Because a lot of our clients are, say, professional services, a lot of accountants and uh, architects and financial advisors, that kind of thing. And you can, you can work with them and help them as well. Yeah, I do. I mean, it tends to be more, <clears throat> excuse me, it tends to be more companies that are doing B2C um, and selling one-to-many. Um, because I think if you're doing sort of one-to-one service, it's quite different. It's a different kind of things a different kind of service um that you offer whereas if you're selling lots of products you're selling lots of services um it is is slightly different and laws are different obviously for working b2b um you know if you're selling some of those products or, or services you're not bound by so many laws you're still bound by contract law obviously um so yeah i do um but it tends to be that the, the bigger projects and big work tends to be more the the, the b2c um, and one-to-many really okay fantastic um, thank you very much for for doing this podcast interview, Helen. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And, it, it, and you, thank you for having me. I, I, I've loved talking to somebody who's complained more than I have, which is <laughs> which is very 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 rare for me. Or it, it's unheard of, in fact. So thank you very much, and um, I, I appreciate you being on here today. You're very welcome. Thank you.